following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. That's probably too loud. Uh, sadly, no Sunday school this morning for the kids. Sorry that you're stuck with me. I'll try to not make it too painful. <laughs> All right. This morning, uh, everybody's been dying to know what I want to preach next, and um, sadly, it's going to be Leviticus. Speaking <laughs> of not making it too painful. Uh, I can't tell you how hard I tried not to preach this book. And one of the reasons I struggled for so long in picking um, a book is because I really didn't want to do this book. Uh, and there's reasons why why uh, we, we would like to preach just about anything else. Um, but it actually makes great sense. Because uh, before Hebrews, we, we looked at Exodus, if you were here then. And really, Exodus, uh, Leviticus is just the ongoing or continuation of the story of Exodus. Exodus doesn't actually end. It's, it's just the beginning of the Pentateuch. Uh, Leviticus falls right in the middle of those first five books that uh, tell the story of um, Israel coming into the Promised Land, or actually coming up to the Promised Land and preparing to be God's holy nation there. And so, you know, with, with Exodus, we saw God, God's amazing rescue, really his salvation of the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And uh, God um, promised to bring them to the land of, of blessing, and he brings them out into the wilderness to, to start heading towards the land of promise. Uh, while he's out in the wilderness, he makes this incredible covenant with them, where the God of all creation enters into this covenant relationship uh, with the Israelites. And so, so God saves them, and he makes them his own people. Uh, and then, of course, they go to Mount Sinai, and there they get some very specific instructions about uh, many things, how they are to live as God's holy people, and, and some very specific instructions about building the tabernacle, or uh, the tent of meeting, tent of meeting, the place where God's holy presence would dwell. And the idea is that, that God himself would, in a very uh, specific way, live in their midst. Of course, he was with them all the time, but now in a very different, a very specific and direct way, God would be their next door neighbor. He would live right in the middle of them. And so uh, Moses builds this tabernacle and the book of Exodus ends with uh, this cloud falling down on the temple and the glory of God descending into the temple and filling it with, with such glory, such presence of God that, the peop- uh, that Moses and Aaron had to flee out of the tent of meeting. And, and then it ends right there. And so it kind of leaves us hanging with a lot of questions. Uh, questions like, uh, do they make it to the promised land? Uh, do, uh, are they able to live uh, with God in their midst? And already God is, is threatened uh, and came this close to wiping them out completely. And so a curious reader will say, I don't think this is going to end well. <laughs> God's living right in the midst of them. Um, how's this going to work? Right? How are these sinful people going to live in the presence of a holy God? Um, 
And then, more importantly, to the book of Leviticus, is, you know, how, what do they do with this temple? They've got this tent of meeting, but how does it work? Like, where's the instruction manual to tell them how to, how to use this cool tent of meeting that Moses just built? And that's exactly what the book of Leviticus is, largely. It's an instruction manual on how to worship God and how to live in his presence. And that's what the book is about. Um, so, um, but I, I will concede that uh, Leviticus is hard, and it's hard for a couple reasons. Um, there's reasons why probably nobody, except for maybe Jessica. Jessica might say it's her favorite book of the Old Testament. I don't know. No, not even Jessica, a resident Old Testament scholar. Even she would say, no, it's not her favorite book of the Old Testament. So, um, probably nobody has a t-shirt that says, I love Leviticus. Right? There's a couple reasons why. First of all, uh, it turns from telling a story that's very narrative and, and kind of engaging to an instruction manual. And we all know how this works. How many of you like reading you know, the instruction manual that came with your, you know, your television? Which now that there are smart TVs, you, you have to read the instruction manual to even know how to turn it on. I got this smart TV. It makes me look really stupid. All right. And so, um, but nobody enjoys reading. Like nobody sits down for leisure and says, wow, I'd like to read some instruction manuals. Just can't get enough of those. Well, that's, so that's kind of what Leviticus is. And so instruction like this tends to be a little strange and bewildering. And honestly, Leviticus is very strange and bewildering. There's instructions about how to slaughter a lamb and burn it on the altar. How to diagnose skin diseases. I can't wait till we get to that section. What to do if the walls of your house are covered in mold, right? Riveting stuff that just, you know, we're, we like don't know what to do with. And, and it's, the problem is not just that they're bewildering, but um, as we read through it, we feel like it's completely irrelevant, right? Be honest. You read it and you go, you know, it's just been, I, I don't have a skin disease and, and, and there's, there's medicine for that now. Right? Don't worry about that. And honestly, I've never tried to kill an animal and, and burn it. Well, I have had barbecue and I burned that, but it was accidental, not on purpose. Right? Um, and as for the whole mold on the wall thing, maybe that's a problem in Thailand, I don't know. It seems like there's mold on everything else. But we, we feel like it's just irrelevant. And like, you know, somehow Jesus did away with all that, so why do we need to read and study this totally irrelevant and confusing book? Uh, but as I said, I, I, I tried to escape, but I could not. And the truth is that the book is actually incredibly relevant because it really is the foundation of our faith and our understanding of what the gospel is. And one of the reasons we think it's irrelevant is we, we have this disconnect between uh, the law of Moses and the gospel. But actually, it is the very foundation that makes the gospel make sense. Um, and it's true that we no longer offer animal sacrifices. Nobody brought a lamb to church this morning and I don't have to kill it and burn it, thankfully. Uh, but that's not because somehow we've outgrown the need for a sacrifice. Right? Uh, we have not. Rather, it is that Jesus has completed or fulfilled by his own sacrifice those requirements that are laid out in, in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Right? It's relevant to us even though it's completed and fulfilled in Jesus. So here's the thing. If we really want to understand more deeply and more fully what Jesus did for us, uh, it's essential that we understand what's going on in the book of Leviticus, that we understand why God gave these crazy rules and instructions and what they mean. 
because it will help us understand Jesus. Um, so, so for today, here's an example of it. Okay, here's an example of how Leviticus will help us understand more of the New Testament. And I can see by some of you looking very skeptical. It's like, I don't believe him. This is a trick. <laughs> it's not a trick. It's true. And here's an example, and I hope to answer this question today. And it's something I've wrestled with for a long time. In the New Testament, uh, in two specific places, but it's implied other places, Paul tells us that we have died with Christ. Right? Does anyone really understand what that means? What does it mean that you died with Christ? Uh, I've wrestled with that. And I've tried to explain it to people, and, and my lack of understanding comes through when I try to explain it, because I can't. Right? It's like, well, I don't know what it means. It's just the Bible says it's true. Um, but Paul said, he says in two places, Romans 6, 8, Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Uh, this is kind of foundational truth to our salvation. He says, our dying with Christ is, is significant in relation to living with him. And so this is important Christian doctrine. Uh, Colossians 3.3, 3, For you have died with Christ, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Well, how did that happen? I feel pretty much alive, right? I, I don't remember having died with Jesus or otherwise, right? So what does this mean? And what's the relevance of this expression, this idea, I have died with Christ? For Paul, it was instrumental to understanding really the working of God and our salvation. But what does it mean? Well, Paul never explains it because he understood Leviticus. Right? And he uh, assumed that we would get it based on uh, the understanding of what, what happened in the Old Testament sacrificial system. So let's look at Leviticus chapter 1. And... Uh, this is going to be more of a survey. This is not going to be exactly a verse-by-verse verse breakdown of the whole book. We're going to take it in bigger chunks. Uh, so today we're going to look at chapter 1, but I'm only going to read the first nine verses. And then it's uh, repeated uh, in a formula for two um, uh, uh, other burnt offerings. Let's start reading in verse 1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying... Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's priests, sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. And Aaron's Sons, the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Okay, then he repeats the formula. Uh, this is for a bull. He repeats the exact same formula, very almost exact same wording. Um, to speak about a, a burnt offering that's a lamb, and then finally a burnt offering that's a, a, a bird, a, a pigeon, or a, a dove. 
Um, so what does this tell us about, uh, about Jesus? Well, uh, he's describing in this first section, in fact, the, the whole first half of the book, the first 17 chapters of Leviticus, uh, describes bringing offerings and the whole process of bringing all different kinds of offerings and how they bring them. And he starts with uh, the first six chapters focusing uh, and written specifically, actually not to the priests, but these first six chapters are written to lay people. And it's describing to them what they do as worshipers to come into God's presence. And what's important to see here is that for the Israelites, uh, worship for them consisted primarily and chiefly of bringing a sacrifice. Uh, later in the temple and, and with David and, and later on in history, uh, worship by singing was added and also instruction by teaching the word. But initially and, and throughout all of Israel's history, at the core of worship was bringing a sacrifice, many different kinds of sacrifice and for many different reasons. And in fact, they couldn't come into the temple empty handed. Right? They were always to bring something, some gift, some offering, some sacrifice. Um, and so the first one he describes in chapter 1 is the burnt offering. And it's a very specific type of sacrifice and offering. Uh, and as we'll see, it has a very specific function or purpose. And it was the most common. It probably started because it was the most common. It was uh, given at least twice a day uh, by the priests and, and often by the people. Uh, and first is described the offering itself. And he says very specifically that the offering is to come from your own flock. Right, so, so this is significant and important. Uh, you couldn't go out and trap uh, a wild ox or find some wild sheep or hunt it and bring it as a sacrifice. It had to come from your own flock. And the reason was simple. A sacrifice had to cost you something personally. It had to, it had to come at a price to you personally. And uh, when you look at what's offered here, it's a bull in the, in the first example Bulls were expensive, uh, and specifically it had to be a male, uh, which in those days cost more than a female. So it was, it was a costly offering, uh, and, and, uh, and it was your own. It came from your own herd, your own possession. Um, so as the first principle here we see is that the offering had to cost something, and, and um, the cost was significant. Um, however, uh, it's also important to see that Cost would never be a factor that made it impossible for you to have a burnt offering. And it's scaled according to your economic status. So the first round we see a bull. Second section I didn't read describes the same process for a lamb, which was considerably cheaper than a bull. And finally, the last offering is for a bird. Uh, so this was a concession for the extremely poor. So if you didn't have a bull, if you didn't have a lamb, if you had really no possessions you could offer uh, a, a bird, which is much, much less expensive. Uh, so it wasn't a matter that only rich people could do this, or that only those who were really well off. It was, it was available, and it was something, uh, it was an option for every person, rich or poor, but the point was that it was to cost something. And as the person would go out and choose, it would, it would, this was a great way to check your heart, right? So... So imagine you're going to go make an offering, and you have before you three, three options. You got the bull, you got the, the lamb, you got the bird. Okay, which one are you going to which one are you going to pick? Well, if you're cheap, you pick the bird, right? But what does it say about how you value 
the whole thing about how you value God. Right? It says you don't really think God's worth very much because you picked the bird. Right? But if you have the means and the ability to upgrade to the lamb, you do that. If you have the means and the ability to offer the bull, you offer the bull. Why? Because it's, it's worth more and it invests your worship with more worth. Right? It's a way of describing and showing God His value to you. Right? So, so, so you had that option, but also it says that it had to be unblemished. Right? So you couldn't go to your herd and survey the herd and say, oh yeah, I'm going to give God a, a bull. Because I'm, I'm going all out for God. Right? And you look and off in the corners, this sick, half-dying, kind of deformed calf uh, that's you know, on its deathbed. So I'm going to give that one. <laughs> Right? It's going to die anyway. I'll give it to God. Right? Well, that would certainly reflect on your heart the same way, wouldn't it? Right? You're not giving God the best. It's to be unblemished, without disease, without sickness, without defect. Right? It is to be holy. And we'll see as the book goes on, holiness in, in Leviticus describe, uh, relates to wholeness or completeness, something that's as it should be. Right? So, so the offering was to be quality. It was to be... Uh, it was to be expensive. It was to be costly. And ultimately, it was, it was to be an expression of your value of God. And here we have a, great, a very relevant application to us. Um, when you worship God, does it cost you something? Uh, do you give to God the best, the chief, the premium of your time and your energy and your resources, or do you give God your leftovers, your rejects? Right? It's like, well, I haven't got nothing else to do. I might as well, might as well read my Bible because like, I'm bored. Right? Is that how it works with you? Right? Or does God get the first and the best of your day and your mind and your heart? Right? Does it cost you something to worship Him? Right? Do you invest something of yourself and your, your resources, your time, your wealth into your relationship with God? Well, the sacrifice was a great heart test of all of that. Right? In a very clear and tangible and practical way, the Israelites could check it every day. The guy who was super wealthy bringing doves right, uh, wasn't really worshiping God. And it was a quick way for God to see and evaluate a very tangible outward expression where their heart was. Secondly, they were, to, they were to worship in a specific place. They were to bring the offering to the tent of meat, to the door, the entrance of the tent of meeting. They couldn't just do this anywhere. This isn't something they could do in their backyard. And the reason was twofold. One, they were to do it before God in His presence. Uh, it was worship because they were coming before God and the goal was to meet Him there to be in his presence. And so it was important that they went to that place where God was and they offered it in his presence. But secondly, it was, it was necessary that it was done there because uh, uh, it, take, it, it required a priest who was a mediator, a go-between. Uh, this was not something, you, it was not a do-it-yourself thing. Right? You had to go through a mediator. It was required. And the reason is that the, the temple was holy and the vessels and things in the temple were holy sacred, they were holy. And they, they had to be handled by a group of people who had been set apart and specially sanctified or made holy to use the, the altar and the temple and the, the, the incense altars and all the stuff that was there. And so 
Uh, important principle here too we can't come to God directly Uh, it requires a mediator and of course we know that Jesus is our great high priest he is our mediator who represents us before God in heaven continually Uh, but most significantly so there's the offering there's the place but one of the most fascinating things in this passage is the posture of worship right there's a certain posture as they came and they brought the animal and you can just picture this you got your your, your lamb or your bull and you're leading it in through this crowd of people and you come up to the altar and the priest inspects it, sees if it passes, it's, not, it's, it's, it's unblemished without defect. And then you would prepare and, and perhaps they would recite a song or a, sing a song or perhaps you would pray a prayer of dedication. God, I, I bring this, my offering to you. And then uh, before you would actually kill the animal... It said that, that the offer was to lay his hand, verse 4, lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Now, it's unfortunate that most translations just translate lay the hand on, um, and there is some meaning in that, but it really falls short of what the word really means. The, the real uh, word uh, means really to, to lean on it, to put weight on it, or to press into something, right? So it wasn't just kind of this casual laying, you know, tapping, nice cow, I'm about to, I'm about to cut your throat, sad day for you, All right? It wasn't like that. Uh, they were actually to, to put the, kind of the, the weight of their body pressing onto the head of the animal. Well, well what was that about? What, what did that mean? Well, the picture here is that this animal is a substitute, and it, was, it says that it was for making atonement. So we, we here see the, the purpose of this offering was because the person had sinned or was aware of sin or was aware that they were sinful. And they recognized that that, that was not acceptable when holy God is your next door neighbor. Right? Something has to be done to deal with this sin. So they would bring the offering to make atonement. That is to, to deal with, to cleanse, to cover over my sin, right? And so, in order to make it appropriate, in order to make it acceptable, it says, is they had to put their weight, they had to lean into this animal. And it's a great symbol or picture of how this animal was was becoming a substitute for me, for the worshiper, right? It was taking his place. Uh, And what's important here is to see that he's taking his place by dying, right? And the reason for this is, is, and I'll talk a little bit more uh, in a minute, but God's a holy God. And, and when there is any sin against him, the result or consequence of that sin is death. Is death. It is the only penalty suitable to cover sin. It doesn't matter how big or how small. Okay, this is not just for murder or for some kind of great insurrection. Every minor infraction, right, ultimately could only be dealt with through death. Right? The wages of sin is death. And so, um, but God, God, God in his grace made a plan that this animal could be a substitute, could die for you. And substitute is a great word, and we use that word often of a sacrifice, and we use it of Jesus. Jesus is our substitute, 
problem is, uh, oftentimes we, we've, we've changed a little bit the meaning of the word substitute so that um, it's, it's weaker than what this word really means. Uh, so, for example, we can talk about a substitute teacher. And uh, it, it, it can mean that <coughs> uh, if I'm a teacher, I got a substitute so that uh, I don't have to go to class that day, right? I, I'm off the hook, so to speak. And that's the, that's the word substitute. Or we can use it for, for example, if we go to a restaurant today after church and we go to lunch and we order our favorite dish, but there's one thing about our favorite dish on the menu that we don't like, right? They put onions in it. Ugh. We don't like onions. So we can, we can talk to the, the waiter or waitress and we can say, I would like to substitute like shrimp for onions. Yeah, right, that's way better. And they may say, well, there's a cost involved with that. I don't care. Anything, just substitute out those onions for something more edible, right, if you don't like onions, right? Or, or maybe you want the onions, right? You can, sub- you can exchange this for that, right? One in place of the other. Um, so, so that's one meaning of the word substitute. And in that sense, it's true. The animal was taking my place. It was substituting its life for mine. Um, but this, this, this picture of, of leaning onto the animal kind of takes it deeper than that. Uh, and it really has the idea that I'm laying my life, symbolically, I'm laying my life on that animal, not just because it's taking my place so that I don't have to die, which it, which it was, but really it was a symbolic way of saying, no, I'm actually dying through the death of that animal. It is what we call in theological terms, it is vicarious, right? Vicarious. Vicarious means I, experiencing, I experience something through somebody else's actions, right? Uh, maybe I can't, you know, I can't, I can't swim anymore, but I can go and I can say to somebody, I want you to go swim for me and I'm going to experience swimming through you, right? It's vicarious. It's doing something through another person. So a surrogate mother, right? Somebody who carries a baby for somebody else. It's not just that they're doing it instead of you. So like one woman says, well, I can't have a baby, so I want you to have one instead of me. That's a substitute. But when it's, when it's a surrogate, you're saying, I want you to have a baby for me. But I want you to carry the baby for me. And when the baby's born, it's going to be my baby because you are doing it. I'm, I'm having the baby through you. Right? That's what a surrogate mother is. And that's really what's pictured here. Right? Uh, the, the offer is acknowledging, because of sin, I need to die. The only way to deal with, the, with my sin is through death. And so I am going to not just let you die for me, but I am actually, by, by leaning on you, putting my life on you, I'm acknowledging that I'm dying through that animal. And so uh, I would be forgiven. Uh, My sin would be cleansed because I did die through the animal. So that's the picture and the posture of how they they bring. And so after they've they've done that symbolic act so that they could have atonement, it says that then they kind of go through the process. They kill it. They collect the blood. The priest splashes the blood on the altar and the, and the blood is a symbol of the life of the animal that's poured out. The life is in the blood. So all through the Old Testament, lo- blood is a big deal because it represents 
the animal's life. And then um, it's actually the worshiper that, that kills the animal. Um, so, so imagine, you know, you've, you've put your life on it and then you take its life, right? You're the one who kills it. Uh, you skin the animal. Uh, they would cut it up in pieces, clean it. And then the priest, uh, for his part, would lay it on the altar and burn the whole thing completely, right? The burnt offering, nothing was eaten. The whole thing was burned completely, consumed by the fire. And, and so in the end, it, it goes up in smoke. And really, literally, that's the picture, that that bull or that lamb or that bird ascends to God in the smoke of the fire. And finally, it says uh, in verse 9, um, uh, it will be a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the, to the Lord. Uh, and that's a significant word there too, a pleasing aroma, a pleasing effect. And it wasn't just that God goes, man, I really like the smell of burning flesh. <laughs> I love that smell. It was not like that. Right? What, it, what it meant was that God was satisfied with the offering. All right? Not because he liked the smell, but because he accepted the heart of the person bringing it and he accepted this animal through whom the person died and paid for their sin. And, and God was satisfied. Right? He was soothed, uh, literally. It can mean he, he, it was a soothing aroma. But what exactly is satisfied or what is soothed in God? Well, <clears throat> to understand that, we need to understand a little more about this idea of atonement. Uh, it is an atoning sacrifice. Uh, what exactly does that mean? Um, to understand atonement, we under, need to understand a little bit more about what it means for God to be holy. What is the holiness of God? Well, the Bible actually never once describes uh, clearly what holiness is. It's just something that is intrinsic in God's nature. Uh, there are pictures of what how it gets displayed. So it gets displayed in his perfection, in his goodness, in his beauty, in his majesty. Right? Those are all things that can relate to his holiness. But holiness really speaks of just God's intrinsic nature. Right? He is holiness in every way. And so the angels in heaven cry out three times, Holy, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty. It's what he is. Um, and now this holy God has come and he's become next door neighbor to the Israelites. He's living in their midst. What does it mean when sinful fallen people live with God as their next door neighbor? Well, uh, what we know <coughs> is that <coughs> the intrinsic holiness of God is incompatible, cannot, cannot be, cannot tolerate sin or unholiness. And a lot of us kind of have a problem with that. Uh, and we think, we hear words like the wrath of God. And the wrath of God is God's holy response to sin. And we think about wrath and anger kind of like anger works in our life. And for us, anger and wrath are often very self-centered and self-motivated and often quite vindictive and petty. And so when we hear these terms about God, we think, well, how if God is loving and good and kind... Can he be also so full, full of wrath and anger? 
Uh, can't he just chill about this whole sin thing? And we get the sense that it's, it's an arbitrary choice of God. Like God can pick, like, well, I could be, I could be more patient, but I just don't want to be, right? But actually, that's to misunderstand what the holiness of God is, right? It's not something that God can arbitrarily choose to be more patient, in which, by the way, he's incredibly patient towards sin, right? But that, 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 that's not what holiness is. Holiness is his nature, and it is his nature that is, by very definition, incompatible with unholiness or sin. So what does that mean? Well, imagine I have this, imagine this is filled with oil and vinegar. I wouldn't drink it like I'm going to do now. What happens if you put oil and vinegar into a, a bottle? Do they mix? Right? We know they don't mix. They are incompatible. And we might shake up the bottle and mix it so that we can pour it on our salad, which is great. But as soon as we stop shaking it, what happens? They separate almost instantly. <coughs> they separate because why? They're incompatible. The nature of oil and the nature of vinegar uh, repel each other. By nature, they repel each other. You can say, "Well, that's a great illustration," but you actually can, with machines, with the right technology, you can make them mash together. Okay, you got me there. <coughs> so let's take a magnet instead. Right? What happens if you take a the negative mag? pole and the positive pole of a magnet and try to force them together. Right? There's this force. They, they, they repel each other. They push each other apart. If it was a weak enough magnet, you could manually do it. But as soon as you let go, they will flee apart. And if it's a strong magnet, I'm telling you, there's no power you have to force them together. Right? Well, that's a picture of the holiness of God. It's not that God is arbitrarily, randomly deciding he doesn't like this or like that. It is his very nature that repels sin, like, a, like, like the polar opposites of a magnet. Or maybe even better is the image, because in, in the magnets, uh, one pole doesn't actually destroy the other, they just repel each other. But actually the holiness of God so repels unholiness and sin that it destroys it. It annihilates it. And that's why the Bible actually uses the image of light. Right? God is light. His holiness is pictured as blazing, brilliant light. And what happens when light comes into any dark space? It destroys it. Right? Darkness cannot, cannot exist in the presence of light. Right? So when, dark, when, when light comes, it, it banishes darkness. And that's, that's, that's the holiness of God. Right? Sin cannot exist in his holy presence. It is banished. So here's a problem for sinful people when God's your next door neighbor. <laughs> what happens when you sin? And you're living next door to this nature, this being, who is holy in his very being in every way, and his very light banishes the darkness. It destroys it. Well, it destroys you, right? If you're there and you don't deal with it, being in the presence of a holy God would annihilate you. <clears throat> and here's the truth and reality. One day when we will stand before God in judgment, those who have not had their sin adequately dealt with, right, will be annihilated, not 
permanently, but they, but they will be banished by the holiness of God. They will not want to be near him. Uh, that's the holy nature of God. So, so we have a problem here. Houston, we have a problem. Right? The wages of sin is death. The Bible's clear. Or as it says in Romans 6.21, but the fruit you were getting at the time when you lived in sin, from the things of which you are now ashamed, right? what was the fruit of those things? For the end of those things is death. Uh, but God, in His grace, understands their sin, and He makes He has a plan, and He makes a provision, and that provision is a sacrifice that will be a substitute, uh, that will atone for sin. And the word atonement can have two meanings. One, it can mean to wipe something off, to clean it by wiping it, and we see this meaning later in other parts of. of the Bible when it talks about taking the blood and wiping it on the altar and on the different pieces of the tabernacle to make atonement right? by wiping the blood it, it consecrated them as holy but another word for the, uh, for the word atonement is, is the word of making a ransom paying a ransom price and I love we sang a song this morning used the word we are ransomed sinners ransomed sinners we are ransomed what does that mean? Well, uh, in our modern language, it means we've been taken hostage by uh, a terrorist and some price is paid to get us out of uh, the hands of the terrorist. Uh, but that's not actually how the word was used in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, a ransom was paid uh, in a court setting. And it would work like this. If you were guilty, let's say you were guilty of the crime of murder, and you go to trial and you see the judge and, and they make the case and it's proven that you were the murderer and you are found guilty. And so the judge is obligated by the law to pass a certain kind of sentence. And he's not, he's not free to pick the sentence. He can't say, well, you killed somebody, you need to do 100 push-ups right, and go to bed without dessert. Right? That would be cool. But he can't do that, right? The law, the law spells out the sentencing requirements. And the requirement for, uh, for, for killing somebody and for many other uh, violations in the Old Testament was death, right? The, the judge had to hand down a death penalty. Uh, but he could, uh, as, as leniency and as grace, he could reduce the sentence by giving you the opportunity to pay a ransom, and what that meant is you were, you were sentenced to die, but you would pay a ransom price. You would pay an amount of money um, to pay the price, the penalty for your sin, and you would ransom your life. So instead of dying, you would pay this, this fine, this fee, and you wouldn't have to die. That's a ransom. And that's exactly what the sacrifice was. It was a ransom. Uh, you were sentenced to die. But by paying the price of this animal, it died in your place and it became a ransom for you. It ransomed your life. It gave you back your life. Okay? And it atoned for you. It atoned for you. Um, so that's the burnt offering. Let me, let me just back up a little bit and apply these things to Jesus quickly as we close uh, and to our, our New Testament age. Uh, we don't do this anymore because Jesus is our ransom. Right? He 
is the ultimate sacrifice. And in, in, in his death on the cross, he fulfilled or completed or accomplished the purpose and meaning of all these sacrifices, including the burnt offering. Um, but let me just give four things that we can think about as we go. First off, I think it's good to, for us as Christians to, to think about and be mindful of the problem of sin. Right? Um, for the Israelites, when every time they sinned, it's like, oh, I did it again, right? It wasn't just a matter of saying, God, you know, I sinned, forgive me, blah, 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 I can go on my way. No, they had to go to the flock and pick out, oh, that's my prize, that's my prize bull. It's a big sin. I better spend that one. And knowing the cost of it, and taking it, and leaning on that head, and putting my life on it, knowing that the cost of my sin is what? Death. Death. And that, that I am going to die through the death of this creature, this poor helpless creature that didn't do anything to deserve it. I'm going to die through its death. And through that, it is going to be a ransom for my life. And I'm going to live because it died. Imagine every time you sin, if that was the process. Well, Jesus died once for all. But every time you sin, it goes back to the cross, right? The cost and the price of your forgiveness is the same every single time. It is the blood of Jesus. And so this helps us and should help us think through and, and, and contemplate the cost of sin. Our unholiness, which is completely incompatible with the nature and character of God. And that left to itself would separate us forever from God's presence. But God saved us. And, and we, we need forgiveness and cleansing through the blood of Jesus for every sin. Okay. Secondly, Um, Jesus is the Lamb of God, the perfect, unblemished Lamb who died for us. But this is where there's a huge difference between the old and the new. And the difference is this. In the Old Testament, the sinner paid the price. It had to come from their own herd. It had to come from their own bull. It cost them something personally. Jesus didn't cost us anything. Right? God paid the price himself fully. Later in history, uh, the, the, the Israelites came to view uh, the power of a sacrifice. They, they, they related it to the offering of when, when Abraham offered Isaac. And they really saw that as the supreme and ultimate sacrifice when a father gives up his own son. And they really, uh, in kind of strange ways, connected their offerings to to this picture, this image of, of Abraham's uh, offering of Isaac. Now, it's not in the Bible. Uh, it's, it's Jewish tradition. But I wonder, uh, when Paul uses some of these imagery, if he, he was drawing on his fellow Israelites' understanding of the father who gave his own son right, as the ultimate and supreme sacrifice to ransom us from sin, right? And and for this, God our Father paid the price. It cost us nothing. It cost God everything. Um, Third thing, uh, I think this picture of leaning on Jesus is profound, right? He is not just our substitute because he took our place. He is that. 
He died instead of us. But when Paul says, uh, you know, that you have died with Christ, do you understand what he means by that now? Right? Jesus died for us so that vicariously we died with him. Right? We lay our hands on Jesus. We put the weight of our life on him and we did die through him. Not just that he died in our place, but he died for us. And we died through him. That's what Paul means by those words. We did die through Jesus. And so now we live together with him. And, And we live through him vicariously. Because he lives, we live. Because our life was laid on him. It's really unfortunate that we can't practice this because I think the power of doing that would be just profound, right? If we could put the weight of our life on that animal. Right? But that's what faith is. Faith is putting the weight of your life on Jesus. It is leaning on him and knowing that not just the facts that he died, but that I am placing the weight of my life and its guilt and sin upon Jesus and I am dying through him so that I can receive atonement so that my life can be right with God and I can now stand and be in the presence of a holy God and not be repelled by him and destroyed by him because of my sin. Lastly, uh, they had to do this daily. Uh, not, not each individual person, but the nation did it morning and evening. And, and the, the the, the private person, the individual, would do it often. Right? We don't know how often, but every time you felt like you'd sinned and you needed forgiveness, you would do this. Well, uh, the Bible tells us clearly in Hebrews, we saw that Jesus died once for all. Right? There is no longer a need for it to be repeated. Right? His death was sufficient. It was enough. But uh, its need for us is daily. Right? It was once for all, but it needs to be applied daily. And there's something very powerful and profound in our life when we practice confession. Right? When we recognize our sin and we go to the altar and we go to the cross and we, by faith, in a sense, lean on Jesus. And, and time after time, we go back to his sacrifice. And through it, we, we die to that sin. And that's why Paul uses the language. We die to sin. Through Christ, we die to its power over our life. And we, we by faith, uh, appropriate, we receive its power that brings cleansing and forgiveness. Right? Jesus died once, but its effect to us is daily, 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 over and over. We can go to that well and draw its life-giving, cleansing power. Lean on Jesus. Right? Lean on Jesus. He is our burnt offering. Um, he is our atonement that makes it possible for us to stand and live in God's presence. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.